Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that our, our contemplation of your word this hour would accomplish your purposes in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began a two-part study of Romans 12, 1 through 2. I, I guess you could say I've made it a two-part study to have mercy on you and not fit it all into one week. Um, but I'd encourage you to turn and you copy the scriptures to Romans 12. I'll read those verses again, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As we saw last week, verse 1 focuses on the need to please God with our bodies, the material part of us. And by way of review, that verse contains, first of all, an urgent plea, I urge you, therefore, about an undefiled presentation where he wrote to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. All of that according to some underlying principles. He includes the phrase brethren by the mercies of God. Well, today we focus on verse 2, which calls us to please God with our minds the immaterial part of our being. So verse 2 begins with the word and, so we see that this is a continuation of the plea that he began in verse 1. In addition to pleasing God with our bodies, we need to please God with our minds, he's saying, which, according to this verse, requires us to continually do three things. First, to reject the world. Second, to renew our way of thinking. And thirdly, to reflect God's will. To reject the world, to renew your way of thinking, and reflect God's will. Let's investigate these three imperatives in turn. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. We are to reject the world system. When he says, do not be conformed, that term means to uh, conform one's mind and character to someone else's pattern, uh, to fashion ourselves according to the external pattern that perhaps others expect of us. 
Here, it's a present imperative. That is, it's a command for right now. But it's in the passive voice. Meaning, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be shaped by or influenced by do not be conformed is passive and yet it's a command, it's an imperative to us. Don't allow that to happen. That term appears only one other time in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 1, verse 14, we read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Here in 1 Peter, it's a participle. It has uh, an ongoing nature to it. But here in Romans, what are we commanded not to do? What not to be conformed to? We're not to be conformed to the world. Now, the world he's talking about here is not the word cosmos uh, as it's typically used, uh, which can be used of the people of the world or the world order or so on. But here he's actually using the word aheon, which refers to the worldly cultural values that are characteristic of our age. Uh, this word has to do with time, and, and we get our word eon, I think, from it. So it has to do with the times we live in, our context. We see both of these words being used in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course, eon, of this world, cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So what do we get from this? Don't allow yourself to be shaped by the worldly value system of our age that completely surrounds you. That would include the values that focus on selfish, external, temporal things rather than eternal godly things. But how can we do that? Well, we need to reject the world, but secondly, we also need to come to the second point of our outline, which is to renew our way of thinking. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That conjunction, but, of course, introduces a contrast. Not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are to not be conformed, but rather transformed. Being conformed typically is speaking about external conformity as to, you know, the, the ways and the values of the world. But being transformed has to do with internal change. We're being changed from the inside out. We see, for example, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, 
where it says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So what's that mean? It means we need to allow God to make us like himself. Allow him to work on us from the inside so that we become more and more like him. So how do we do that? Well, it involves renewing, it says here. That's a, a, a complete renovation, uh, a complete change for the better. It's distinct from regeneration, which is one time, um, and this renewing is, is, is meant to be ongoing. It's a nonstop job. The renewing of our minds is continual. That term, renewing, is used elsewhere in Scripture only in Titus 3.5, where it says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is renewing us in an active, ongoing way, progressively making us new, um, like God himself, Christ-like. But then secondly, we learn this is, has to do with the renewing of our mind. That word mind comprises both the faculties of perceiving, understanding, but also those of feeling and judgment and determination. In Luke 24, 45, after the, the resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples and in Luke 24, 45 says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that's a good thing. In Romans 1.28, we see a bad example where it says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. You see how our frame of mind influences what we do? It all springs from what's going on in our minds. And here, particularly in Romans 12, 2, Paul focuses on one essential means of transportation, this renewal, uh, transformation, this renewal of our minds. So, why does our mind need to be renewed? Aren't we saved? Well, there are two reasons. One, it's because the effects of sin... One of the effects of sin is that our minds have become corrupted, darkened, um, unresponsive to reality. That's one of the effects of sin. Uh, Romans 8, beginning of verse 5, for example, says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man, that is, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So the fall of man included the fall of our mind, our thinking, our understanding of reality. Well, the second reason our minds need renewing is that God doesn't instantaneously overcome the effects of sin the moment we're saved. The transformation of our character and even our thinking takes place over time. It's part of our progressive sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ as we forsake sin and yield to the Holy Spirit's convicting and leading ministry in our lives. Indeed, we're actually commanded here to do this, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's something we are to participate in we're to yield to. God's the one ultimately who does it. He's the one transforming us. But we participate by our cooperation and obedience. These are imperatives. They're commands, not just suggestions. And we see this elsewhere too. For example, in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Likewise, Colossians 3 begins by saying, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things 
of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Oh, how crucial this is. If you long to break loose from conformity to the world, if you long to be transformed and new from the inside out, if you long to be free from mere duty-driven Christianity and do what you love to do because what you love to do is what you ought to do, if you long to offer up your body as a living sacrifice so that your whole life becomes a spiritual act of worship and displays the worth of Christ above the worth of the world, then give yourself with all your might to pursuing this, the renewal of your mind. Because the Bible says this is the key to becoming Christ-like. Allow God to make you like himself by progressively giving you new thoughts, new values, new priorities, new convictions, and new desires. Ones that have eternal, not just temporal, consequence. But how can we do that? Well, you probably remember that Scripture teaches us that we have three main enemies in the Christian life. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, how should we respond to the deceptions of the devil? Well, Ephesians 6.13, put on the full armor of God, then what? Stand firm. How should we respond to the enticements of the flesh? 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Make no provision for the flesh. How should we avoid the enticements of the world? We're here in Romans 12.2, we read, or we're being taught, to let the word of God transform our minds, our thinking. It's somewhat common, I think, to speak of having a biblical worldview. What does it mean to have a biblical worldview? People often reduce it to what our position should be on certain current issues. But it's much more than that much more fundamental than that. Let me offer you a short description of what I believe it means to have a biblical worldview. View everything from God's perspective as revealed in Scripture, then act accordingly. View everything from God's perspective as revealed in Scripture, then act accordingly. That means, first of all, that we'll understand that God is our sovereign creator. And that has many implications. He designed the universe, our planet, and everything in it, including us. He spoke all the elements and features of the universe into existence out of nothing. And he created mankind by his own hands and breathed into us the breath of life. And what we call the laws of nature are his design. 
reflecting his beauty, his wisdom, and orderliness. If we have a biblical worldview, we'll look at the world and our circumstances from the creator's perspective. It also means that we'll look at ourselves from his perspective. He created man as the pinnacle of his creative work, but he created us to be his stewards over all the earth. We read in Genesis 1, for example, beginning in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, what is a steward? A steward is someone who manages someone else's property. The more appropriate word, perhaps in our case, is the word slave. Because as our creator, God owns everything, including us. And God, as a good master, provides for the needs of his slaves and has commissioned us to manage everything he has given to us to advance his purposes, not our purposes. The alternative worldview is that life is all about what we get out of it. It's all about me. Have you heard that one before? Unfortunately, each of us still struggles with the remnants of that in our way of thinking. So we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Since we are his slaves, we are responsible for managing everything he has given us, all that we have and all that we are, to advance his purposes, not our purposes. That includes our bodies, our time, our skills, and all of our resources, including our minds. Indeed, we won't manage anything for God's purposes until our minds are aligned with the true reality of God's perspective. If our minds understand this clearly with deep conviction, the rest of a biblical worldview and our application of it will fall into place naturally. Several of Jesus' parables highlighted this master-slave relationship. You'll probably remember the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, starting in verse 11, where we read, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. In other words, he wanted to teach them what they needed to be doing while he's gone before he returns. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave, gave them 10 minas. as one mina to each slave. Now a mina was a certain amount of money determined by its weight. 
Um, and he said to them, do business with this until I come back. In other words, they were to use the master's resources to advance the interest of who? The master, right? But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. But when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first one appeared and saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. All ten of those minas belong to who? The master. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. And the second one came saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And all five of those, of course, belong to the master. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. What's he saying? The reality that this master isn't doing the work, but he's receiving the fruit of the work, right? That slave didn't like that concept. And so the master said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reap what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he already has 10 minas. And he said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. Why is that? Because the master knows that the pers that person, the, the obedient, the productive one, will advance the master's interest the most. But from the one who does not have, in other words, the one who doesn't understand his role as a slave, even what he has shall be taken away. Well, back to Romans 12. We see that Paul gives us the reason why we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which is the third part of our outline, and that is, to reflect God's will. He says, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that, that word prove, dokimazo, is sometimes used to mean to test, to examine, scrutinize, to see whether something is genuine or not. Sometimes it's used to show by evidence, to approve, to deem worthy. It's actually used in both ways in 1 Peter 1.7, where it says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result 
in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing gives proof. It's used in both ways. When our minds are aligned with God's view of things, we will put his view of the world on display. Specifically, we'll be proving what the will of God is. And we're told here how we're to think of the will of God. The will of God, of course, is what God wants, what he delights in, what he has determined. And here we see it has at least three relevant characteristics. One is that it's good. You know what that means? It means good. We understand what good is, but of course, uh, that's true um, in its essence, it's true really only of God. What God does is always good because he himself is good. And of course, we were reminded of that in Matthew 19 when someone came to Christ and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And of course, Christ's answer first was, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Who's that? God. Um, and of course, Jesus could, could affirm, it is true of me, but that wasn't his point at the moment. The other word we have here in Romans 12 is acceptable. This means not just pleasing, but well-pleasing. And uh, you might remember from last week, that's the same word used in verse 1 that our our sacrifice of our bodies is to be acceptable to God. It's interesting that in Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 10, we see these various concepts brought together. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn, that's this word prove, what is pleasing, that is acceptable to the Lord. The third characteristic of God's will that we'll be proving is that it's perfect. That means it's mature, it's, it's complete, lacking in nothing. It's the correct end result. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, for example, we read, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet, evil in, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So what's that mean? God wants to mature our way of thinking to his way of thinking so that our actions will reflect his way of living, which is what pleases him. It starts internally and it plays out in our actions. God wants to mature our way of thinking to his way of thinking 
so that our actions will reflect his way of living, which is what pleases him. I think it would be helpful to survey several principles and applications of these commands as we close. First principle would be, be alert to the deceptions of worldly thinking. That should be obvious. Be alert to the deceptions of worldly thinking. In Colossians 2.8, we read, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So, again, it's a command to be alert. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The lesson here is don't be deceived by the world's values, logic, and rewards. Don't even expose yourself to the worldly values so prevalent all around us. Secondly, don't depend on your own logic. Don't depend on your own logic either. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world uh, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God, but by doing 
but by his doing you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The lesson for us is to evaluate our ideas and our priorities. Are they God-centered or self-centered? Do they violate any explicit commands or principles in Scripture? Our third application principle is to saturate your mind with the Word of God. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. That's a challenge. Colossians 2, 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commands and teaching of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And of course, you're familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If we get our heads screwed on straight, our feet will follow. That's basically what it means. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. The lesson for us is to become mature in the mind of Christ by reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on, and applying the scriptures. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to know the real thing extremely well. So I think the last application for us is that we need to check our values. Understand clearly how the values of the world contrast with biblical values. For example, in the world's value system, they think, well, because we evolved by random chance, 
there are no moral absolutes. Morality and ethics are whatever society wants them to be. Have you heard that? Well, the biblical value is that the basis for all morality is God's person and will as revealed in the Bible. God holds us accountable to the moral absolutes he has clearly revealed in Scripture. Diametrically opposed viewpoints. Another of the world's value, because of that, is to be focused on the here and now. If we have a biblical worldview, we're ultimately focused on eternity. Our minds are focused on ultimate reality and eternal truth. So have you succumbed to moral relativism or secular thinking? The lesson for us is that we need to let God renew our minds by studying his values in the scriptures, then applying them to the decisions that we make. I would add here an application for parents to take serious responsibility for the values that your children are developing. If what's important to them is dictated by their peers, you have a lot of foolishness to undo. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And if their view of reality is being shaped by secular philosophies, whether it's from school, the media, the internet, or whatever, then take charge of the training of their minds, character, and values. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, the bottom line, we need to think and act biblically. You've probably heard the uh, little acronym WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, that's a good reminder, but I think there's a more important one we should ask ourselves. HWJT. How would Jesus think? What would glorify God the most? What would have the most eternal impact? What would be most consistent with God's will? Let us pray. Lord God, we desperately need to think about our lives and the world around us the way you do, and then act accordingly. Please transform our minds by your word so that your will would be advanced by how we think and therefore by what we do. We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior and for his glory. Amen.